Well, good morning to all of you and a special good morning to all of you joining us from Calvary Quakertown. It's great to have you with us. The video just reminded you that we're in a series that we're calling, how do you fit in when you don't really fit in? How can you stand out in positive ways when you don't fit into the normal current of how things are going? And we're working our way through the book of Daniel to do that. Now remember, Daniel and a few of his friends are POWs in Babylon. They've been taken as captives from Jerusalem, moved all the way over to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. And this morning is the last time that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be on the scene as we work through the book. Nebuchadnezzar is kind of front and center, chapters one through four. When you come to chapter five, he's off the scene. A new king is ruling. And so this is our last chance to talk about Nebuchadnezzar. The only thing funny about Nebuchadnezzar is his name, I think. Well, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four, here's what's going on. Chapter four is all about pride and how God cures pride. How does God bring humility when there should be pride? And I'm saying, my guess is some of you are sitting there, I don't need this topic. Why don't you talk about something important? How do you deal with anxiety? How to get along better with your spouse? How do you work out in school better? How can you juggle all of these different activities? Yeah, but the Bible would say repeatedly, pride is a problem that we need to figure out. Let me give you a, two examples as to why that's true. If you were to ask most people in our culture, most people that would believe in God, how does God kind of look at humanity or people in general? So here it is. Inside this circle are all people that live and have ever lived, right there in there. I think most people would say, God divides the circle this way. You have the good people at the top, bad people at the bottom. God connects with the good people and God doesn't connect with the bad people. Therefore, clean up your act, become a good person so you can connect with God. All humanity, good people, bad people, God connects with the good people. Interestingly, as you read through the Bible, you don't see that. In fact, you see this as you read through the Bible. God connects with some good people, and God connects with some bad people. And God doesn't connect with some good people, and God doesn't connect with some bad people. The goodness and badness thing isn't really the primary determiner as to whether you're connected to God or not. Let's do it the biblical way. So if this is all of humanity, all people fit in the circle, picture it God dividing it this way, vertically. On the one side, you have those that are proud, and on the other side, you have those that are humble. And in this picture, I think the Bible would say, God connects with the humble but he doesn't connect with the proud. And that's a constant theme as you read through the Bible. God is not connecting with people that are full of themselves and think that they can handle life all by themselves. God connects with humble people who realize life requires more than they have, more resource than they can bring to the table. God comes alongside, welcomes, rescues, and connects with them. So that's one reason why it's important for us to think about pride because we need to cure pride if we're ever going to connect with God. Now, here's another reason. Pride hides. Did you ever notice that? I talked to a few uh, of the counselors over the past couple of weeks, and I know from my own experience, 
Over the years, I've had lots of people, dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of people come to me and say, hey, do you know where I can get help on dealing with anxiety, how to live better with my spouse, how to make this thing in school work out, how to get a better job, how to work and work, work life out so that my work and family and church and all that stuff's kind of in proportion. I have never had, and no one in our counseling center has ever had someone show up and say, I really have a problem with pride and I want you to help me become more humble. Never had that. Now that doesn't mean that nobody struggles with pride. It means that pride hides. It's not front and center. And so even though we all struggle to one degree or another, it's not right there for us to see. But how are we going to figure it out? I think Daniel 4 can help us figure out this problem that we all struggle with, but a problem that sometimes hides and is difficult to see. Now, we're going to kind of play physician this morning. We're going to use the categories of symptoms, diagnosis, prognosis, and prescription. We're going to work through just like you go to the doctor. doctor kind of diagnoses the problem, tells you what you have to do. We're going to use that as our main categories to, work through, to walk through Daniel chapter 4. Well, the first thing we need to do then is to look at some of the symptoms. Some of the symptoms. And maybe you need to ask yourself, do you have any of these symptoms as well? Well, here's a verse at the beginning of the chapter that kind of shows how the story begins to unfold. Nebuchadnezzar, king in Babylon, is at home in the palace, contented and prosperous. Now, you're going to discover by the time you get to the end of the chapter, that's not where he is. But the chapter starts out, Nebuchadnezzar is in the palace, in the royal residence. He's contented and prosperous. You bet he is. He's king of Babylon. He's at the top of the org chart. He's the only guy in the world that can't be fired. He has all the riches that you can imagine. And if not, he kind of sends the army out to conquer a kingdom or two, bring in their resources. So Nebuchadnezzar has the riches he wants. He has the esteem that he wants. There's not a single person in the kingdom that probably didn't wish he or she was Nebuchadnezzar. After all, he's ruling. He's at the top of the org chart. There are thousands of people waiting for him to just breathe a command so that they can fulfill it. Nebuchadnezzar has what you and I could only dream of having and then some. That's the symptom. But then Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It's a really weird dream. Let me tell you the dream, but you can read it in chapter four later today. The eagles don't play, and so you can read it. Here's how the dream goes. Nebuchadnezzar dreams, and in the dream, he sees a giant tree. This tree is so big that all the birds of the world kind of nest and roost in the tree. Uh, The tree feeds them all. All the animals of the world kind of live underneath the tree. They're protected by the tree. They're sheltered by the tree. They're nourished by the tree. This tree is providing life and shelter protection for everything in the world. Well, in the middle of the dream, a messenger shows up and the messenger says, cut the tree down, discard all the fruit, strip off all the branches and then take some iron bands and wrap them around the trunk so that the tree is kind of stunted and can't grow again. Nebuchadnezzar is uh, distraught when he reads, or when he hears, when he sees the dream, because somehow he's connecting 
Babylon, the dream, Nebuchadnezzar, the tree, it's kind of all working out together. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to verse 24 of Daniel chapter 4, and let's read what uh, Daniel says about the dream. Verse 24. Daniel says, this is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against the Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. So Daniel gives the interpretation that he doesn't want to give, and certainly Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want to hear. Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. He's providing nourishment and protection and shelter to everybody in the world, but the tree is going to be cut down, and he's going to, for a time, be bound together so he's not able to function normally, but dew is going to live on him. He's going to live like an animal until he comes to his senses and realizes that God is in control. That's kind of the dream, the symptom. Now, Daniel kind of shoots straight and says, Nebuchadnezzar, you can avoid the fulfillment of the dream. Renounce your wickedness, renounce your pride, show kindness to the oppressed, do away with all of your sin, and the dream won't come true. And Nebuchadnezzar kind of listens for a year. But then we read in Daniel, verse 29, 12 months later, a whole year, 12 months later, As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Ian, message, uh, lesson from Daniel must not have sunk in real deeply because it took a year, but it's not there anymore. And then the dream immediately begins to be fulfilled. Well, if that's kind of the symptom, let's diagnose that a little bit. You already know the basic diagnosis because we looked at the end at the beginning. I mean, I'm kind of a to the point, you know, just kind of shoot straight kind of guy. I don't need long rationale explanations. Let's get to the point. Well, when you get to the point of the diagnosis, the point is the last verse in the chapter. And the last verse of the chapter says that God is able to humble those that are full of pride. That's the point of the chapter. And since we often struggle with that and it hides, we need to kind of learn the lesson. God is able to humble those that are full of pride. Let me give you a a simple definition. Pride is pretending that you're the author of what is actually a gift. Living as if you're the author of what is actually a gift. Isn't that what Nebuchadnezzar was doing in that verse 29? He's looking around and saying, I've done all of this. And he really did a bunch of stuff. There was a giant wall that was hundreds of miles long around the city. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, probably built by Nebuchadnezzar. 
Inscription after inscription, you can read on all of these ancient monuments, all written and all built when Nebuchadnezzar was ruling. He really had done a lot. But it was a gift, and he was treating as if he was the author. Now, does that sound familiar? I did this. I accomplished that. My discipline, my IQ, my stick to my talent, my abilities. I did all of this. That's kind of what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. Treating what is actually a gift as if you're the author. That's the problem. Humility, then, is treating all of life as a gift. Humility is recognizing that all we have is ultimately a gift. We didn't earn any of it. It all comes as a gift. I can prove my point by reading two diaries. I came across two diaries. They'll help you understand. Um, so here are two diaries that will help you understand the difference between pride, pretending you're the author of what's a gift, and of humility, treating all of life as a gift. The first diary is a dog's journal. 8 a.m., dog food, my favorite thing. 9.30, a car ride, my favorite thing. 9.40, a walk in the park, my favorite thing. 10.30, got rubbed on my belly and petted on my back, my favorite thing. 12 o'clock, lunch, my favorite thing. 3 o'clock, wag my tail, my favorite thing. 5 o'clock, milk bones, my favorite thing. 8 o'clock, watch TV with the family, my favorite thing. 11 o'clock, sleeping in my bed, my favorite thing. Pride or humility? You don't have to answer, just kind of think about that diary. Now here's the second diary, a cat's journal. <laughs> Day 983 of my captivity. My captors continued to taunt me with bizarre little dangling objects. They dine lavishly on fresh meat while I'm forced to eat dry cereal. The only thing that keeps me going is the hope of escape and the mild satisfaction I get from ruining the occasional piece of furniture. Today, I was almost successful in an attempt to assassinate one of my tormentors by weaving around his feet as he was walking. I will try this again tomorrow at the top of the stairs. In an attempt to disgust and repulse these vile oppressors, I once again induced myself to vomit on their favorite chair. I will try this on the bed tomorrow. I decapitated a mouse and brought, and brought them to my, uh, and brought the cat, the headless body in an attempt to make my captors aware of what I'm capable of doing and try to strike fear into their hearts. They only cooed and condescended about what a good cat I was. Hmm, need to reassess that plan. There was some sort of gathering of their accomplices. I was placed in solitary confinement throughout the event. However, I could hear the noise and the smell of food. More importantly, I overheard that my confinement was due to my power of allergies. I will learn what that means and pursue it in the future. <laughs> yeah, two diaries. One, all of life is a gift. Or I deserve more than what I'm getting. It may be funny to read those two journals, but here's the truth of the matter. We often live with a sense of we deserve. We live with a sense of entitlement. All of that comes from a heart of pride. In fact, when things are going our way and pride's the driver inside, what do we say? I deserve it. I should have this. It's about time I get it. When things don't go the way we want, 
Oh, we deserve more than this. I'm suffering more than anybody else. I can't believe it. See how that works? Which means there's no joy in the person's life who's full of pride because they're only getting what they deserve and nothing more. And if they're not getting what they want, they deserve more. And they look around and see the people that have it and they're continually frustrated and angry that they don't. Yeah, we're kind of all guilty when we look a little at the diagnosis, aren't we? No, I know some of you are probably sitting there and you're saying, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've worked hard for what I've got. I go to work every day. I get up earlier than I should. I put my time in. I did all extracurricular activities in high school, so I get into a good college. I get into a good college. I applied myself. I didn't party all the time. I went to class. I worked hard. Now I'm at my job. I apply myself, and I'm working really. Yeah, but let's step back from that a minute. You didn't choose your race. You didn't choose your gender. You didn't choose the country in which you would be born. You didn't choose the century in which you would be born. You didn't choose your IQ. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose your siblings. You didn't choose your network of extended relationships. You know, if push comes to shove, when we apply ourselves and work hard and diligently, we're only working with the resources that God's given us as gifts anyway. We bring nothing to the table except use the gifts that God's already given. The diagnosis is all of life really is a gift. And if we would live with the perspective that life is more a gift than getting we, we, what we deserve, we'd live more with humility and we'd discover that we would connect with God more fully because God doesn't connect with the proud. God connects with those that are humble. Well, that then raises a, a question. What's the prognosis? Like, where do we go to see what's going to happen? I find it um, ironic and accurate what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. What happens to Nebuchadnezzar is he, for all practical purposes, begins to live like an animal. But if you think about it, that's exactly what pride does. Let me tell you what pride does. Pride causes us to not be able to empathize with anyone else. Now, I know you think your dog empathizes with you or whatever other, and, and so you're sitting there, and the dog is very sad. Look at you with sad eyes because the Phillies will not make the playoff. The, dog's not, the dog smells the potato chips you're eating, right? The dog wants you to pet. The dog is self-consumed. The dog is not empathizing. What happens, those that are full of pride cannot empathize. They find it impossible to ever put themselves into someone else's shoes because they're self-consumed. It's always about them. The drama's always about them. The movie always has them as the star. Can't empathize. Well, if you play that out a little longer, what happens? Nebuchadnezzar winds up being isolated and separated from all people. And if you continue, if we continue to live with the heart of pride, we wind up being all alone. My guess is that you know some people that are proud, pompous and brown. You don't go out of your way to spend lots of time with them. They don't go out of time, they're out of their way to spend much time with you. They're on their own journey. And so as you live with that center long enough, not being able to empathize, eventually you wind up isolated, and alone. So maybe God in Daniel chapter 4 is just showing us a little bit of the end of the journey. If we can't cure this idea by trusting God, understanding who he is, the idea that 
we deserve life and we're the author of what's really a gift, if we don't wrap our heads around that and begin to cure that, we will not be able to empathize. We will be separated from people. And all the things that we talk about, growing in community, connecting in community, all the good things that happen in community, you'll be outside community. And so at Saturn, we talk about section communities. Well, people that are pompous and proud, they're not too interested in being involved in section communities. At Quakertown, we have small groups and home groups. But if you're full of pride and no humility, the group's going to be about you and you want to make it about... Pride diminishes empathy, and if it runs long enough, you'll be isolated and alone, just like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Well, what's the prescription then? I know you look at the clock and say, well, Charles, if you'd be done now, this would really be good. Well, now we need the prescription first. How are we going to be healed of this? You know, the good news is by the time you come to the end of Daniel 4, 4 Nebuchadnezzar is healed. He understands who God is. He's been humbled. He's connecting to God. Something's happened. What's the prescription? I want to tease it out in four pieces for you. Pretty simple to understand. Here's the first one. You need some friends that are wise and courageous. Thankfully, Nebuchadnezzar has Daniel. Daniel walks into his presence. Now, this dream happens about 30 years after the dream in chapter 2. So this isn't like two weeks later. I mean, Daniel's put on 30 years. Nebuchadnezzar's put on 30 years. He comes back and he has another hard interpretation. The interpretation in Daniel 2 was not an easy one to give. This one's even worse to give. But Daniel comes in and he doesn't cower before the powerful. He speaks the truth. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, I wish this dream was about your enemies, but it's about you. And so I'll tell you the truth because I really care about you. And I'm going to do the courageous thing because I want this to take root and change you. Many years ago, uh, I was speaking to a, a person I had just met, a well-known speaker, and we were having lunch. And eventually, I'm not sure what triggered the comment, but he said, uh, I want to share with you the best piece of advice that I've ever received, and I'd be willing to bet it may be the best piece of advice you'll receive. He said, you need a few people that are close to you who really love you. Now, there are a lot of people that are going to critique you and are going to be, you don't need too many of them close. They'll wear you out. But you need some people that really love you but are not impressed with you. That's kind of wise and courageous. You need people that, are shoot, that will shoot straight, but they really care about you. People that don't care about you, they just throw the criticisms that wound and they don't care. People that are impressed never tell you the truth. We got to kind of balance that. Doesn't Paul say, speak the truth in love? Do you have some of those people in your life? Nebuchadnezzar had Daniel. Who do you have? People that will speak the truth, but really love you and want to see positive change in you. We need to cultivate those relationships. And if you don't have them, since pride hides, we may never know how pompous we really are. The second part of the prescription is that we have to recognize and remember that God is sovereign. That's the point of the chapter. In fact, right in the middle of the interpretation, Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, this is coming, and this will continue to come until you realize that God is sovereign, and he gives the kingdoms of this world 
to whomever he desires. Nebuchadnezzar, he gave the kingdom of the world to you. Don't treat it as if you're the author. It's a gift from God. The whole theme of the chapter is make sure you remember God is sovereign. But we know more of the story than that, right? God's not only sovereign, God's also loving and gracious. Think about that. Our heavenly father is in control of all that can be controlled, but he loves us and has our best interest in mind. Now, he may bring into your life some things that you would never want brought into your life. And he may keep from you some things that you really want. But God brings into our lives exactly what we would want if we knew everything that he knew. And God keeps from us everything that we would keep from us if we knew everything that he knows. God is sovereign. And until we come to that conclusion, it may be easy to think that you're the author of what's really a gift. And if you think that you're the author of what really is a gift, you're setting yourself up to be taken to school and you can learn that lesson the hard way or the easy way. And I've been praying for myself and for all of us this week. Let's learn this the easy way through Nebuchadnezzar's journey. Rather than learn it the hard way by having God take us on a similar journey. Let's for once learn something the easy way rather than the hard way. You know, there's an important lesson in here too in the prescription. And that is that no one is too far from God's grace. No one. We've got to realize that no one is so far from God that they can't come back. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. He's a murderer. He's arrogant. He's an idolater. He's full of himself. And God goes through these great lengths to get his attention and bring him to himself. Now, look, we don't have all the tools that Nebuchadnezzar had, but I'm guessing we have some of the same seeds in our hearts that he has. And you're not too far to come back to God. Your friends that you may have written off, God hasn't written off. No one is too far from God. People have not committed things that will keep them from God forever. God goes after them and God wants to bring them back. And one of the key ways is to show them that he is sovereign, that he's loving, and that no one is too far from God. Now the point of the chapter is God is sovereign and God gives the kingdoms of the world to whomever he desires. Now we know if you keep reading the rest of the book, if you keep a couple of books over, you discover that God has given the kingdom of this world to his son Jesus forever. That's where this is all headed. You gotta realize that no one's so far from God. You gotta realize that true contentment and true prosperity are only found in Jesus. So when God, who can determine who's going to rule, determine who's going to rule, he said, my son will rule forever and ever. And the chapter began with Nebuchadnezzar thinking he was fully content, looking at around at all of his prosperity. But in the middle of, chapter, of the chapter, he loses all of that. He loses his contentment through a dream. How secure was that? He loses his prosperity through the fulfillment of the dream. But as we uh, sang earlier, if Jesus is your king and your savior, that contentment is never lost. That prosperity cannot be taken away. It may not always go exactly the way we want it to go, but it goes the way God wants it to go to make us exactly 
into the people he wants us to be. So do you have some wise and courageous friends that can speak the truth and love into your life? I sure hope you don't forget that God is sovereign and the affairs of this world are in his hand and he's going to put in charge whoever he wants to put in charge. When you forget that, God has a lot of ways to teach us the truth of that. What do you say we learned the easy way, not the hard way? No one's too far from God's grace. My guess is some of you in this room have been praying for some people 10 years, 15 years. A good friend of mine prayed for his father who was kind of obstinate and proud and he prayed for his father for 39 years. And his father eventually found out what it was like to follow Jesus and committed his life to following him. No one's beyond God's grace. Don't stop praying. Don't stop working. Don't start sharing. And remember that we're all looking for contentment. We're all looking for prosperity. We're all looking for acceptance. The only way you find those things eternally is to find them in Jesus, the king to whom God sets up forever and ever. Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks for this chapter and for some other chapters of the Bible that on the surface we wonder if they really have anything to say about us. A chapter about a strange king who lived a long time ago in a faraway place. And yet, Lord, the message, since it comes from you, is eternally relevant. Because the same seeds in Nebuchadnezzar's heart are in our heart. And we like to claim authorship for gifts that you've given. Lord, help us to accept all of life as a gift. To know that you're in charge of all the affairs of the universe. And you love us and care for us. And help us not to trust for the end, but to trust for the means, knowing that, that you know what you're doing. And our expectations and the goals that we want to accomplish, maybe they should be penciled in, but following you needs to be written in ink. Because you are the king and our savior who gives contentment, security forever. We pray in his name.